There we go. Oh, it's being recorded and I'm wearing my stupid merchandise shirt. I oh, should get fine. rid of that. We, we don't use the swear, it was just, just audio. Com- it was a comfy shirt straight out of the washer. What's the merchandise shirt? I, I would rather no. It's it's my company, and I'm being I'm being the I'm being the guy in this band shirt right now. Love it. You know what? I think in the past three interviews we've had, our interviewees have been wearing band shirts. So I, I feel like we're starting. But to was it time. their band? Because that's like a that's a particular kind of lameness. You're stepping up the game. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. It's okay. Welcome back to We're Totally Not Okay. But that's okay. The podcast about the intersection of mass media culture and mental health. Holy. I'm Justin Van Liso. I'm impressed. You did it so well. I did it. I did it so well. And I did it in my radio voice. Oh my God. My, <laughs> my, my radio voice is gone because I'm just so elated. My heart is in my throat. That was beautiful. Oh, um, thank you. For those who don't understand, Justin finally nailed the intro. <laughs> That was a big deal for us. It's been a long process, guys, but we finally came full circle. (laughs) And let's come full circle to introducing who we're speaking with today, because we don't let them in the interview. We get straight into it all, which is hilarious and beautiful. But we had the opportunity to speak with documentary filmmakers Omar Mualam and Dylan Reese Howard. They created a documentary called Digging in the Dirt. And it can be found on CBC Gem. It focuses on addiction, suicide, and men's mental health in the Alberta oil sands. So not a small topic. Not small at all. It's it's one of those projects that obviously made my mind go into like, okay, what was your point? Did you want to change policy? Did you have some sort of intention to get into political movement? But these these are filmmakers looking to uncover truth and story and come at it from sort of different perspectives. You will hear about how different both Omar and Dylan are in their collaboration on this project, which is super fascinating. Even how they approached it is really different. Yeah, and it did have an effect on both of them, how it changed the two of them. It's cool to listen to how they were affected by it. You'll hear a little bit more about that in the second half of our interview. This ended up being such a poignant conversation that we held Omar from his kids for another episode's (laughs) worth of content. So we split this up into two episodes. And in this first half that we're releasing, we talk about the ethics of documentary filmmaking, uncovering artifice in art, so how they actually went about shooting it, leaving booms in the shot to give the audience that sense of seeing behind the curtain, Um, the level of prep that went into it, but also balancing that with the organic approach to uncovering truth in their story. So leaving room for things that were unexpected and letting the people that they were interviewing reveal things that were unexpected and that forced them to follow that down sort of a different path for their story. We also spoke about avoiding exploitative shots, which ties into the ethics of documentary filmmaking, and also how the loved ones who were dealing with these suicides dealt with their grief. So lots to unpack there. Lots and lots and lots to unpack. Yeah. Um, But yeah, without further ado, here's Dylan and Omar. (laughs) Yeah, let me just uh, get this awkward mic thing out of your faces yeah we want to see your face it's, it's like uh it's like what you're always looking for when the boom is in the shot yeah um, exactly so it's a real look i mean you guys put the boom in the shot a couple times anyways we did yeah that was a that was a, a stylistic choice yeah so how come i mean why don't we just jump right into it why did you choose to put the boom in the shot I'm wow, curious. great opening question. Yeah, thank you. Before we get into that, like, I sincerely do <laughs> no, want to No, 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 we're this. talking about the boom here. We got to talk about the boom. I know, but um, we want to know no. who you are. <laughs> no. <laughs> All right, forget about it. No, 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 let's go. Let's, let's, we'll do your thing. I'm just fucking around. Oh, it's fine. I just yeah. want to know about the boom. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God, kills. <laughs> 
Dylan, why is the boom in the shot? Oh, we, we are going to talk about the boom? I, I'm actually really excited because no, nobody's asked about this yet. Uh, but it's like a, a big part of the documentary, I feel, that the second interview angle, like the B-cam angle in all the interviews, shows almost the entirety of the, um, the infrastructure behind the, the interview setup, like the lights and the microphone and, and everything. And the idea was, it was suggested by the director of photography, Aaron Munson, to, to have a component of this documentary that was where we were sort of laying our cards on the table and trying to be as vulnerable as filmmakers as the subjects were being um, in terms of opening up. I mean, obviously you can't like equate the two things, but it was in efforts to show on our part that uh, to, to kind of, yeah, show behind the scenes a little bit and kind of show our cards and show the, the sort of the inherent artifice that is part of any, any documentary um, that, is, that is still kind of professing to be the truth. Yeah, that was kind of like our, our way to, to be vulnerable, uh, I guess, uh, yeah. sort of, as, as, a, as, as a sign of solidarity, I guess. With the, that's, with the, that's interesting. I, I, I think I interpreted it a little bit differently. I saw it as sort of just like tearing down the facade um, that we inherently put up as human beings, whether we're experts or, you know, um, or just regular people on this topic. Uh, I mean, we are asking people to sort of undress their souls a little bit. And so I think that, like you use the word artifice, I like that sort of removing that um, kind of reminds us that uh, we are going under the surface, digging into the dirt, if you will. I have a question then regarding how you balance being open and vulnerable with the people you're interviewing, the people that you're shaping the story around, the people in the documentary, while at the same time ensuring your protecting the same kind of transparency with your audience, especially in the day and age where our audiences are recognizing more and more that reality TV, for example, is not necessarily real, that the more that reality TV tries to report itself as reality TV, the more we understand is shaped. How do you go about making that, that balance where you are honoring truth with both the subject you're speaking with and the audience while they know you're shaping this documentary? Well, good one. I mean, I think a lot about the ethics of, of documentary. Um, yeah, well, the ethics of filmmaking in general, but, but certainly the ethics of documentary. Um, and knowing that um, just by editing, um, that, that's it, you don't need to do any, any other sort of artificial modifications to a, to a piece of footage, like just by virtue of the fact that by assembling this documentary, what we're doing is we're selecting our favorite parts and putting them in a sequence and arranging them and rearranging what people said. That's an inherent part of the process. Um, and they know that, uh, um, and, and they've signed up for that. And in a way, I think they're also, um, most people I think who are participating in a documentary encourage that because if they trust, if they trust you, then they understand that your editorial instincts will ultimately make their positions more coherent. And um, so, I mean, I think that's really, really what it comes comes down to is is uh, is having is is establishing a sense of trust um, with your subjects. It's the same as if I mean, if you're doing a, a a narrative piece, it's establishing a sense of trust with your actors. Um, and we had that trust, I think. Um, um, because in, in many cases, because Omar had done all this legwork um, prior to us filming this documentary with his journalism work and the writing that he'd done about this, he had connections with a lot of the subjects that we interviewed. But when you have that level of trust established with the subject, and they know that you're not out to mis misrepresent them at all. Um, and in fact, like you're, you're, you're out to do the, the opposite. Um, you you want to give them a, a, a platform um, to be able to speak about something that's very important to them uh, and, and present it in a way where it's going to have the most impact possible. Uh, and, so and, tell, and tell the bigger truth. I don't, I don't see it as any different from editing a, a story uh, or a book uh, whatsoever. There is, um, you know, there's a difference between the kind of editing that goes into reality TV uh, that is manipulative, but also I think that reality TV contestants, like they are actually, they know by now they know that they're signing up for it. And so it's almost become part of the format 
that um, the producers are going to sort of prompt you and even direct you to act like an exaggerated version of yourself. Um, we don't do that as documentary filmmakers, uh, as sort of an ethical, as an ethical practice. There are exceptions. Tiger King is one of those. I don't know if you have seen or read or listened to some of the critiques of it. It's actually quite abhorrent um, how that film was made and the amount of manipulative editing out of context uh, clips are in it. It's, um, it, it certainly devalues any entertainment value that uh, that movie had left. But I think this is different. Um, and so I, I, you know, I, as, as storytellers, you're out there to tell the deeper truth and to tell the deeper truth, you can't just set up a camera and um, let people talk for as long as they want and put this together chronologically. You, you have to, to, to get to the truth, you have to um, sequence things in a, in a certain way. You have to create emotional tension, withhold a little bit, give a little bit and, um, you know, just sort of play to the audience's pathos because what they feel, hopefully the devastation and at times hope and the insight that they feel, that's the truth of the matter. And that, that's what we have to evoke. We have I mean, just an incredible level of respect for our subjects because of how forthcoming they were and how vulnerable they were being. And that's, I mean, everybody, Omar, myself, and our editor, Crystal, I mean, just a tremendous, tremendous amount of respect and approaching everything, everything we were doing, putting this documentary in terms of making sure that these people are uh, like, we're, we're doing, we're doing our job to, mm -hmm. to make sure these people are, are, are yeah, represented with respect and, and in a way that's accurate. And I think also an incredible respect for the craft too, for the, for the medium um, or genre of, of documentary films. Um, you know, we wouldn't be, we wouldn't have made this if we didn't love documentaries and understand that the pa the power that they have. And I think that as a, as a professional, when you go into a situation um, like this, uh, whether I'm interviewing someone as a journalist or, or we're making a movie um, when, when they see how hard you work and when they see how, how serious you are about the craft, um, that builds trust without having to like ask for it um, in return. Funny that you mentioned that. I come from a journalistic background and I find personally, I love taking the weight off my shoulders of having to be unbiased when I move into more narrative work or if I'm doing an improv show, if I don't have to worry about that kind of honor that you have to uphold that you can make a lot more opinionated choices with the craft when you talk about truth sorry justin i'm i've got a bunch of questions already off the bat I'm oh fine. sorry was justin there oh yeah, who that's fine <laughs> there you are. i told like right off the bat justin i rain ran after cool. about half an hour so until then go kales oh that's what you sound like yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I have a question about truth. You were talking about serving the bigger truth as the documentary filmmaker. And correct me if I'm wrong, but from my understanding, making a documentary is sort of like that crossroads between the journalistic approach as well as the narrative approach. You're getting to craft something. You're getting to have a lot more control in the edit room afterwards, as opposed to, say, serving the bias of a newspaper or a news outlet that uh, you have to adhere to the bias of that. The truth that you're looking to uncover or create a platform for, would you not say that that is still sort of a challenge of being able to nail that capital T truth on the head if we're all coming from our own religious backgrounds, upbringings, the fact that we don't always agree exactly on what truth might be. How do you find that balance, walk that tightrope of presenting facts or keeping it unbiased while you still might have your own idea of the truth that you came originally to the idea with? This really plays into that ethics of documentary thing. When we started, we started off talking about, I think about, and, and I think my bias is, is similar to yours, Kaylee, in that <clears throat> like I, def I definitely... I definitely feel that freedom as well, uh, working, working in narrative where you feel like people understand that 
it's a point of view of the writer and the director and the performers, whereas you do have that sort of higher level of responsibility. When people see a documentary, they are going to interpret it as, as being, as being a, a truth, the truth. Um, and, I mean, this is, it's, it's kind of interesting it, for all the uh, sort of destructive elements of the conversation surrounding this sort of post-truth era and, and uh, you know, Donald Trump and Facebook and, and this, the conversation that we should absolutely stay away from. But um, part, of, <laughs> part, part of what is, is interesting about the fact that it's happening now is that I think people are perhaps raising their level of awareness about how um, people really are. Maybe people don't necessarily agree on, uh, on reality. Um, not to make it sound like I just smoked a huge joint before this <laughs> interview. Oh, I love where this is going. <laughs> but but you, you, know, you know what I'm saying. Um, and, and so within, within the, the, the context of, of documentary, I think that's one of the, always been one of the red flags for me. One of the things that I've, that I've, I've been nervous about um, in, with, with making documentaries is presenting something and knowing that someone's going to interpret that as, as it being the way things are. Um, I think what, uh, what made it possible for me to to work on this film was I mean one just having I mean uh, you can probably tell from just the differences you've noticed in our personalities already over the course of this 10 minute conversation but Omar is like a very grounding <laughs> a very grounding uh, force um, and and he was he's just really um, a rock in these in these interviews and has a very clear goal of like what we're what we're trying to do with this documentary and he's he's not going to be deflected by um like sort of his own whatever his own insecurities and and uh and, and they are many <laughs> and uh, <laughs> but you know um so it, it, like i just found the fact that omar was was really um in in charge of setting up these interviews connecting with the subjects and then asking um researching and uh preparing and asking the questions um, I really kind of trusted his sort of journalistic integrity and his moral compass because um, he's been doing this, uh, he's been operating in sort of this journalism realm. Um, and whereas, you know, I've, I've only, the only documentaries that I've made prior to this have really been loving profiles and portraits of my musician friends in Edmonton. So, um, so that was one. So Omar's grounding influence was one. And then the second one was just, I think that our approach to this documentary was so focused on just giving voice to the experience, um, not just giving voice, but largely giving voice to the experiences of people um, who, had, who, had, who had experience with um, hard, hardship and, and struggling with, with mental health uh, in the context of working in oil and gas. And those uh, people who have made sort of their careers and their their academic uh, research um, focused on um, on supporting those people. So we really just kind of like giving those people an opportunity to talk about the things that they knew very intimately, um, and then uh, with without providing you know without coming in with some sort of really strong editorial voice and saying you see what the problem is here. Uh, and here's everything we should do to solve it. It was just very much like, here's, 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 here's the reality of the situation through the voices of people who have lived it, and here are some people who think that, uh, who have some ideas of how we might respond to this and create a situation that's better for people. So did you have intentions with this project to affect any kind of change, say, on a policy level? Yeah, I think so. But we were going about it a little bit differently. Um, you know, there's a place in journalism for, there's a place for activist journalism, there's a place for personal journalism, and a lot of it can be very powerful and sometimes even more powerful. Um, uh, instead of the, the, the more objective role, a little bit more distance between yourself and the subject. Um, I think that... I mean, we we put a, a, a fair bit of work into the pre, pre-production, the research part of this. We pre-interviewed um, just about everyone, um, myself and, and Lizzie Dirksen, who, who wrote the, the documentary script. Um, and as Dylan mentioned, I had interviewed some of these subjects um, quite a bit before for other stories I'd written on this same topic. So we weren't going in blind. Uh, there's several approaches you can 
take when you go into a uh, work of narrative journalism, I'll call this that, um, you can you can go in not knowing a whole lot and really naturally figure out the story as you go. And I've heard of documentarians who do this. I can't remember the, the, the team, but they just put out this documentary about Russell Simmons and um, misogyny and sexual harassment in the music industry. And um, the documentary filmmaker uh, was talking about how she purposely does not uh, take in all the research that her team builds up uh, builds for her beforehand. She wants to go in and learn new information and respond to new information in a very natural way. So that's one way you can do it. But I think that, you know, more often than not, you're opening yourself up to, um, uh, to, I don't know. I mean, I think you're, you're opening up yourself up to some problems with that. Um, but if you can do it, you can do it. Uh, another way to go in is to, um, make up your mind about what the story is already and go in and, uh, you know, by hell or high water, you're going to tell the story that you want to tell. And that's the wrong thing to do. And I think that's what something like Tiger King does. Um, or you can just put in a lot of work up front and figure out what your story is and then go in with this kind of precision to get, um, you know, to, to talk to the people and get the footage that you need to tell that story. Um, I think that's more of the approach that we took. That said, we were flexible um, when interview opportunities came up as we were traveling. And you have to keep in mind that we were traveling as well. So our, our, our schedules were really tight. So we really had to go in prepared um, and prepare the subjects as well so that they know what we're going to talk about. But when we would get to a destination and interview opportunity would come up, such as with the mother of Dallin Head, who actually opens the, um, opens the documentary and becomes quite a central figure in that, that came up as a fluke. We were in Grand Prairie for a few hours. We were interviewing Dennis, uh, interviewing Dennis Shinsky. Mm-hmm. And he said, hey, would you like to talk to uh, Dallin's mom. Dallin is his friend who had um, killed himself and was, you know, a big part of the interview with him. And I mean, we, we said, yes, of course we would, we would really like to, if she'd be willing to. And he facilitated that. And um, incredibly, she had never really, she'd never talked to, you know, media about it. Um, I don't think she'd ever spoken publicly about it. And, and I got the sense that she'd never, she had not um, opened up about it a lot to anyone, but enough time had passed that she was ready to talk. And we asked and she was ready. And the next morning we showed up and just, we just did it. And she was, um, she, I was so impressed by how, composed she was you know even though there were difficult moments um it was incredible to see someone who had processed their grief like that um open up about it for the first time with such clarity that was that was pretty amazing to see well i think one of the more powerful moments of the film too is when she actually stands up because she doesn't want to keep talking about it and you guys left that in and i know especially like when you're interviewing it's, it's a really weird dichotomy. I'm also working on a documentary at the moment, so living a similar life right now, we're in post-production, but it's a really weird dichotomy where you're so happy because you're thinking of the edit and you're going, this is such a powerful story beat, yet it's such a tragic thing that you have to sit there super composed. How do you actually, how do you actually remove yourself from those moments and, and actually sit in the stories while simultaneously thinking about the edit and what those beats are going to look like and and how that's going to come out without kind of getting letting that get in the way of of the line of questioning oh my god it's interesting go ahead well i mean this kind of comes back to the boom shots i think that moment the moment with um angela angel our expert on the subject who um has a personal connection to it and um and really, you know, she she loses her composure and um, and breaks down talking about her her brother Jason. Um, I don't know if we would have kept those moments together 
it kept those moments in the kept those scenes in the movie had we not committed ourselves to this um framework this style of removing the artifice mm -hmm. if if it was just the boom shots and we didn't include those i don't think it would work if it was just those and not the like you know pulling out um including the lighting and the boom shots then i don't think it worked but that together is sort of part of the style of the documentary to remind us that um you know, part of the problem with men's mental health, with anyone's mental health, is that we um, put, a, is sometimes we're too stoic. We're, we're, we're stoic um, when it's actually to our own detriment. We're our own good. Yeah, I mean, I, I uh, <laughs> yeah, I recognize that those moments do, are, are effectively beats within the context of this being a documentary film that has a structure and a narrative arc and, and all of those things. But for me, those moments served um, ex essentially to just remind the audience that these are real people on, on, your, on your screen, on your, on your screen of choice. I mean, I don't think I've ever seen a, I mean, we're used to this imagery in documentary films where you're taught, you know, the, it's the bereaved person and, uh, and, you know, they're remembering a specific events and, you know, they go in for the close up as they, as they start to tear up and, and yeah, I mean, sometimes I see those moments in documentary and it makes me, it makes me feel like it's really exploitative and gross. Um, but I don't think I've ever seen, I don't think I've ever seen a moment in a documentary where an expert is, is suddenly, um, confronted with with uh, their personal association to this issue and, and overwhelmed by it. Um, and in the context of this film, I think it really serves to remind us and hopefully remind our audience that everyone, this, yeah, this issue touches so many people. Even the people that uh, you wouldn't expect it to. When you were talking about sort of stumbling upon that powerful discussion, that powerful moment of humanity, or even just being able to chat with her, um, and you did so by keeping yourself open. You clearly had an idea of where the story was going to go, what you wanted to tell, um, but being able to connect with her and interview her. Did you have to in any way fight with any higher ups, push to be able to have that kind of organic approach to including conversations that you didn't plan on having? Did you already, were you already signed with CBC for distribution? What, who did you have to answer to in making those sorts of risks. Are we talking about Allie or are we talking about Angela? Gallen's mother, Allie? Allie. Allie. Yeah. Um, no, I, right, D Dylan, no. Yeah, no. I, was, I was just gonna say, I, I mean, I always, um, I always feel a little bit, like I, I wonder like if anybody from CBC hears this or whatever, but, but when, it, when, when I think about this, it, it's because the stream under which we produce this documentary was like the lowest tier uh, stream um, in the CBC's sort of oeuvre of, uh, of, of documentary shows. Um, there, and and uh, I, there was just very little editorial oversight, which was, um, which was, I mean, I kept, I, when I would send the cuts in for notes and, and not really get too much feedback back from my producer, I would always, I was always sort of, I would think to myself like, are we just killing it? Or is this person just, just does this person just have too much on their plate? Which is the real reality, I think, at the, uh, at, at the CBC. But I, I really, I really appreciated it. I mean, we, we basically, I, I, it was one, it was the biggest project I've ever made. And it was the least I've ever had to deal with like a back and forth with any, with the, with the distributor, client, producer, um, whatever we, we basic and, and maybe that's just a testament to the fact that we we made more or less exactly what we said we were going to make i mean we planned it very well there were deviations that are you know inherent to the, the process of making documentary and things come up that you don't expect and blah 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 but but basically like we they wanted a um they wanted an arc with four acts to fit into their commercial break structure and we gave them that and then we went and and and, and and shot more or less what we what we kind of promised. So maybe, maybe we just did our maybe we just did our jobs well. Maybe we just need to accept that. <laughs> I think we did. Um, I don't have really another comparison, so I, I you know I can't really give any insight into what um, why we were given so much freedom. But I guess one thing to remember is that it is an independent film. 
um, you know, CBC uh, was a, I mean, this movie wouldn't have been made without them, but in the end they are, they are an executive producer. They are, am I right, Dylan? Like that, that is right. That is the agreement. And, and they're, you know, they, their financial support uh, was for the first year broadcast broadcast rights. Um, So if this were, you know, if this were a fifth estate documentary, <laughs> passionate eye documentary, it would probably be a story. They're more invested in it. And um, I would expect, uh, you know, a lot, you know, a lot more feedback uh, and, and probably a bigger team, to be honest. I mean, this movie was made with no more than three technical people at once. Yeah. What actually brought you to the story? So as an independent film, it takes a lot of, oomph to get it to where it now is like that's kudos to you guys that's a shitload of work that a lot of people don't realize happens so you did it congratulations and you're still doing it right now like even though it's out and on cbc you're here on a podcast promoting it like that is all work that people don't necessarily recognize goes into it um so what was it that kind of drove you guys to get so passionate about oil workers in edmonton and alberta like in alberta um, committing suicide. Like what, what was it that actually brought you to that story and kept you engaged for this long? I, I feel like you and I have told the story um, so many times that by now that it's starting to become that like, so how'd you guys meet story? <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> like we've, we've got it. Like, I feel like we've got it dialed in like a, like an old married couple now. Oh, tell us the love story. But I like, I like the way that, uh, that you're, that Justin's positioning it here, though, because it's it's not so much um, what what brought you to this documentary; it's more what brought you to this issue, which is perhaps a little bit a little bit more interesting, a little bit more a little bit more personal. Whereas the story of like how Omar and I got together to make this documentary is that you know, we're both we we both live in Edmonton, we're in the same circles, and we're making work about the same subject, and and thought this would be an incredible opportunity to collaborate. But uh, I don't know, Omar, why don't you go first? Because you started writing about this. Well, it's, uh, really yeah, I mean, movies about it. you said it was personal. I, I, I believe that it is for you. It's not, it wasn't for me. Um, it became personal, but it wasn't at the beginning. Um, I, actually, Omar, do you mind if I just stop you there for a second? Because you and I have had the conversation about why, why I stay in Edmonton. And I, I wonder if we could answer this in a way that sort of incorporates that a little bit. Like when I asked you, like, um, yeah, and you said because there are stories here. Right. I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I was just wondering if you could answer it coming from that sort of perspective. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I learned very early on in my freelance writing and journalism career was that uh, living in Edmonton was an advantage. Uh, I moved here in 2006 during the boom. Um, Early years of the boom, a lot of stuff going on here good and bad, but all of it very interesting. Um, you know, we're talking economically, socially. Uh, it was just, it was a province in rapid transition. And, um, you know, that's fertile ground for a freelancer like myself. Um, and especially considering that uh, there's a very small media industry here. And so I felt like I had all these stories um, within my reach and not a lot of people to, uh, not a lot not a lot of other freelancers to compete with to tell those stories. It'd be very different if I was in Toronto or Vancouver um, where there's a lot more uh, freelancer competition. So, um, so that's, I, so, you know, that's, that's sort of the, um, I guess the, the foundation for, my work uh, as a journalist is just that like i'm i'm here to tell stories and sometimes i generate the stories myself i see them out in the world and i think that's a story i want to write about that and i pitch them and hopefully sell them and tell it the way that i think it needs to be told um just as often though someone comes to me and says this is a story we'd like you to write it. And that's what happened with this. So when I say that it wasn't really personal for me, I, I mean, I really mean that it wasn't, I, you know, another, another term for a freelancer might be a mercenary. Um, the, the guardian news came to me and said, Hey, heard that there was a 
spike in suicides in Alberta likely linked to the um, the economic uh, recession, the the crash in the oil market. Uh, we'd like you to do a story. Can you? Will you do it? And I said, of course. Um, and it was uh, in the process of telling that story that I I think I realized that, you know, yes, the the spike is almost certainly related to the uh, the recession, though it, it will be a while before we can actually conclusively say those two things. But maybe more importantly, there has been a, a suicide mental health crisis in the oil patch for a very long time in front of all of us, but nobody's really labeled it that yet. And um, that was sort of the moment when it clicked for me. And then I, I did a couple more stories um, about this. Uh, sort of making the recession a little bit more of a footnote and doing a deeper dive into the the uh, social factors, environmental factors, um, and gender factors, gender politics that are uh, exacerbating this mental health crisis. Um, the more I learned about men's mental health, the more I was able to reflect on myself and um, my own issues, my own um, struggles with it, my own, uh, I guess, inability to um, be vulnerable when that, uh, and, and, and open about my, you know, about struggles that I have when it is absolutely in my best interest to do it. That's when it became a little bit more personal. Um, but, you know, until then it was, you know, it was just, it was a job. It was just a story that I, I wanted to tell and thought it was a story worth telling. My introduction to it, to the, this sort of topic of uh, men's mental health in, in oil and gas goes, I think it's just um, being, uh, being a filmmaker who's interested in, in staying at Edmondson and telling stories that are, that are here and happening around us. And the oil and gas culture is kind of ubiquitous. I mean, Omar and I both grew up in Alberta. So even though we're sort of in the minority that uh, it, um, it, in, in terms of how, like, I don't think really anybody in our family is even really, in our respective families are, are involved in oil and gas, which is, which is, which I think is relatively rare. Um, it's still, it's still everywhere. And so you have the opportunity then to, to, um, to set yourself up as, you know, you recognize that it's antagonistic to your particular worldview. So do you go through life feeling uh, in a constant sort of state of, of, uh, of, of conflict with this place that you're from and this culture that you, that you grew up within? Or do you start asking some questions about why it is the way it is? And uh, in the process of doing that, learn, learn unexpected things about yourself. Um, that's sort of been my, my, yeah, my whole, I guess, philosophical outlook or approach to filmmaking since I graduated from film school and moved back here from, from Vancouver. Um, yeah, I mean, I have to say that with the current government in, in Alberta, it's pushing, it's, it's pushing me, it's, it's pushing me away more than anything uh, ever, ever has in the past. Like I'm, I'm starting to get pretty worn down in terms of like feeling, feeling like I, I, uh, I, I can't care about this place. Um, but, uh, but, but certainly part of the reason, um, I'm drawn to making a documentary like this or telling a story like this is because I care about the place that I'm from and, and, uh, I want it to be a, a sort of healthier, happier, uh, place for people. And I don't see the way to do that as necessarily by pointing the finger at, at people who are different, who have had lives that are very different from mine, you know, and, and saying that, you know, like they're the, they're the problem. Um, like I, I would much rather ask, ask questions about, um, how, how we got here and, and where we're going. A really cool thing that's reflected in the film too is when I forget the expert's name, but he's talking about how if the oil industry wants to change, there's nothing he can do unless they do it themselves. Like it has to be for them, by them, um, which was a really cool takeaway too, especially as storytellers, having someone actually acknowledge the fact that yes, they can try to help and yes, you can try to do all these things, but at the end of the day, it's not going to work unless it, it the people who need to change or who, who we view as the issue is the issue actually needs to be dealt with internally. The biggest takeaway for me from making this documentary was, was understanding ex exactly that thing, the, that 
for, especially with men's mental health, but I'm sure this applies to many issues. You know, you can't just put a, a, a phone, a help, a helpline phone number on the, on the wall and, uh, and, 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 and say that that's kind of solved all your problems mm-hmm. um, because it's very hard for people. I mean, I, I think, I, I can't remember if this is in the documentary or not, but I remember when we were talking to the Australian guy, Omar, I'm so sorry. I think he goes with, I think he goes with Jorgen now because he's okay. committed to being Australian so he's going with that hard J all right um, take two all right I can't remember if this is in the documentary or not but uh Jorgen Goldstrup um from uh, from Australia talks about how, I mean he's he is basically a professional mental health advocate um and and uh you know he was he was telling me about how when his marriage was was breaking down he he knew all the numbers to call and he still he he, and he knew he was struggling but he still couldn't pick up the phone and 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 ask for help it's it's everyone knows it's it's the it's a very very difficult thing to do and it 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 is still especially difficult for for men so the the fact that if we're going to make any leeway in terms of creating a world where uh we're experiencing um a, a greater um a great culture of mental health awareness and and uh, and support. It has to be peer to peer, or at least it has to start that way. It has to start by being able to by by somebody you work with being able to inform you about what resources are there, or just or just even notice that something might be up with you and and create an opportunity to even start engaging in a dialogue about it. Um, anyway, that was that was really really impactful uh, for me because um, yeah, like I want. You know, like I'm, I'm a, I'm sort of left, left wing by nature. Like I want to believe in the power of institutional change and like top down change. Um, it's not know. by nature, Dylan. You were <laughs> raised that way by lefty. I'm joking. Before we run away from this, real quick though, it's interesting to hear you say you can't just slap up a phone number and call it a day because at the end of the film, you slap up a phone number. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, we did that at the, we did that at the end. It's not. Like the documentary isn't like digging in the dirt, call this number, <laughs> credits. <laughs> but it's, I mean, it's still interesting, right? You talk about trying to, trying to facilitate this, this kind of grassroots realization, yet then you still put the top-down option at the end. So what is your actually hope that like someone watching this takes away? Yeah. I, I think... If I may... Sorry, if I may add, uh, because I think we've we've had a really good discussion about like journalistic ethics and and um, objectivity. I think that one of the most important things uh, is that if you don't have the answers, don't pretend that you do. Give that space to people who might have the answers, who are better positioned to um, sort of propose resolutions um we are not experts in this neither of us have a background in oil mental health suicide prevention we're just filmmakers um but i think that we're good storytellers i think that we understand that but when it comes to what to do about the story and the truth that we now know it's not really our place to tell people what that is it's our place to talk to people who know better and to give them the opportunity to give them the airspace to get that out there. So while we're going to outro this, I'm just going to jump right into my cool thing, which is breaking the fourth wall, which they did with all their booms and stuff in the actual shots. Um, And having just recently filmed a documentary myself, I find this super interesting because it's not something we chose to do. We like actively were like, no, we're not going to do this. But for these guys' story, it actually played a really large part because they wanted to acknowledge their role in telling this story, which I think is really cool, especially in a community where not a lot of people are coming forward to talk about it. Like we're seeing this movement kind of just start to snowball and happen. And so it's really interesting to see too. And I think in the next episode, you'll hear more about how Omar actually got onto the topic and some of the challenges he faced with that um, and how that really kind of encouraged him to acknowledge his role in this subject matter. Yeah, I'm really excited about the second half of this interview. (laughs) So sorry that you guys can't listen to it yet. It will be out in the following week. Um, 
but it was really cool to learn see how they also learned about not only men's mental health in this particular capacity in this industry but about themselves the more that they were able to reflect on their own personal mental struggles and journeys and if the work didn't start off personal it was cool to see that it certainly did become so for you know Omar and and to have that kind of reflection I, I think that's what I mean, putting the boom in the shot and showing that there are real filmmakers that are carving this piece of art, this documentary that they're sharing with the world. Um, obviously, being a, a filmmaker, an artist myself, I'm attracted to the idea of figuring out who that person is behind the lens and why they wanted to tell this story and what kind of effect this storytelling had on them. So very fortunate that we were able to uncover that part of the discussion, not only just shining a light on the work that they're doing, but seeing how these humans were affected and changed through this process themselves. And hopefully if you watch it, you'll also be changed and question some of your things. I think Kaylee and I have tried to approach men's mental health a couple times in recent months, um, and all of them felt really unsatisfying or it didn't feel like we were handling it properly. But I think this episode, and and specifically Dylan and Omar, really understand who they're speaking to. And obviously, they've put so much research into it beforehand. But I think this is really the one where you can go, yes, this is an issue. This isn't something that happens in isolation. Like, even if you're not digging in oil sands in Alberta, men's mental health is different than other mental forms of mental health and acknowledging that and being able to address that in the way that it needs to be is is really cool and I think they did a really good job of kind of setting the bar for how that should be discussed. I think that's an important aspect to take a look at because mental health in general is all, is still something that we have not explored far enough into to fully understand and while it's great to create these larger bubbles of conversation to understand it in more of a blanketed way doesn't necessarily uncover all of the truths that are hidden within the contextual confinements of every situation. So mental health is an individualistic sort of thing. It's situation to situation and person to person. And even questioning, for instance, in the oil and gas culture in Edmonton, Alberta, whether or not these suicide levels that were spiking were related to the recession, or if it had always been there sans label, you know, not necessarily being able to come to a conclusion and finding the answer, but posing those questions and starting to take a look at things in a different light, the same way that we can for ourselves. We might not necessarily always find the answers as to why we're feeling the way that we're feeling or what's going on in our noggins, but to start to you know, live that partially examined life and asking questions that you were avoiding unconsciously that will start to uncover some truths for yourself. Something that, I guess, to bring it around to my cool thing, something that I was listening to this morning, um, I don't know if I've mentioned Sad Guru on here before. I'll, I'll plug Sad Guru. I'll put a little link to this, this yogi that I listen to on a regular basis who I will will we'll claim to be a credible source. <laughs> he seems very well studied. And he was talking about how some of the studies he was reading were saying that stress calls, at least I believe in the United States he was referencing, are up 1000%. And that obviously being due to incredible pressures that we're experiencing right now, COVID having hit, economic situations blowing up, not being able to put bread on the table, like down to that personal experience of uncertainty that's coupled with the the grandiosity of uncertainty that is life itself. And, you know, just on a national level, it was making me think about how Alan Watts talks about recessions being related to this man-made thing called money that money is man-made and yet we let it have such an effect on our everyday life. He talks about the fact that, you know, when you go to build a house, you don't necessarily stop building because there are no more inches available that day to measure the house. And inches are that man-constructed measurement the same way that money is a man-constructed measurement of success, worthiness, wealth, whatever it may be, this idea that we've created that guides our behaviors. 
really hit home when Sadhguru was talking about the fact that stress levels, stress calls were up that much, that these sorts of things have that kind of effect, that kind of a wave. Um, one other, I guess that was, that was just a tangent, not the cool thing that I was meaning to plug, but I wanted to plug another documentary that I've started getting into. It's on Netflix. It's called The Most Unknown, and this is from 2018, so I'm late to the game on watching this, but... <laughs> At least it's not Tiger King. I still haven't watched that. <laughs> Anyways, I'm kind of afraid. I I think I just need to be in the right headspace to watch a documentary. Like when it's something that is positive as real, because I do like fantasy. I like to escape. But when I'm in the right headspace and when I can handle things that are posited as reality, I get into obviously things that are kind of existentialist. And the most unknown is it definitely dives into existential matter, dark matter, deep matter. And it's a documentary film that sends nine scientists to extraordinary parts of the world to uncover unexpected answers to some of humanity's biggest questions. So it follows astronomers, neuroscientists, cognitive psychologists, obviously right up my alley. What I found interesting with that, not only the fact that it was existentialist in nature, but there are moments where they break the fourth wall but not as much. They don't do it in the same way that Omar and Dylan do in their documentary. So I guess just kind of a cool way to start watching documentaries is, you know, be aware of who is making them, why they're telling these stories, what questions they're Mm -hmm. asking and what they're withholding, what they didn't include in the film. Yeah, it's a great point. Anyways, we got a double feature with Omar and Dylan. So stay tuned for episode two. Before we say goodbye... We wanted to share Alberta's mental health line, which is plugged at the end of digging in the dirt. And we want to share it here with you as well. It is 1-877-303-2642. Again, that's Alberta's mental health line. Thanks, y'all, for listening. Bye. If you like this podcast, you can support it by subscribing to it on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also leave us a review. Which sincerely helps us. Which we love. Come hang out with us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and send us your questions, recommendations, and cool things at we're totally not okay at gmail.com. Learn more about how you can lend your voice to this podcast and join us on an episode by looking at the link in our description. More information can be found at anchor.fm. Thanks for listening to We're Totally Not Okay. But that's okay. 